Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I just want to welcome everybody back to the show. This is a little bit of a different episode, so we're introducing it in a little bit of a different way. To help us do that, we have Tim Leboy Koparopa, ELC's head of community. Hey, Patrick. Uh, thanks for having me on the show again. So bring us in. Like, What do we do? And give us the background behind this episode. Yeah, so let me take you back to October of 2022. This show really came about from recognizing that we were going to have the community in person again for the first time in, in what had been a very long time. We wanted to be able to continue to find opportunities and find ways to give voice to our community members and find out what's on their mind. So outside of the roundtable discussions we were doing, outside of the one-on-one -on -one connections, we also wanted to make sure that they were able to contribute and kind of experience what it's like to be on the Engineering Leadership Podcast. And we called this the pop-up podcast booth. That was sort of our, our colloquial internal reference here. Why did we want to host this for the community at ELC Annual? What was important about this part of the experience? I think really to, to talk about that, we also have to talk about what makes ELC special, right? It's, it's ultimately about empowering our community and empowering engineering leaders to share their experience and be able to learn from others. We wanted to be sure that we had a space where we could do that. The podcast became this this really good kind of idea on, okay, how, how can we bring this to life? How can we make it fun? And how can we make sure that folks feel comfortable sharing? So just to give a little bit of a, an image of people's heads, we're, we're walking into the Fort Mason Center. And on the left was this sort of almost floor-to-ceiling window looking into this little room that had been dressed up with camera equipment, microphone equipment, and Tim LeBoy Koparopa. And the energy coming out of that pop-up podcast booth was so exciting. And I think even too, Tim... You had gone around and, and found some people in the community out, you know, in the halls of the conference who were having incredibly energetic conversations. And then you pulled them into the booth saying, hey, we're just gonna hit record. We want to hear the conversation that's going on. So what topics did you cover? What was the content of these conversations that people are going to hear today? How do I phrase this? It was almost like addicting, right? Just hearing people excited about solving problems and solving challenges and recognizing that the people that were at Annual, the people that are in our community understand at the end of the day, some of the, the challenges and, and issues that we face as leaders are pretty similar. It was awesome seeing people have those moments of connection and recognition. In terms of some of the topics that really kind of stood out to me and were fascinating, there was a conversation between Jeremy and, and Dobermeer around technology shifts. And this was particular around AI and machine learning, which, you know, now being a couple months removed from October, when we're seeing ChatGPT enter the, the popular, you know, social zeitgeist, knowing that some of our community members were already thinking, okay, how can our teams leverage this tool? And how do we bring about that change in our organizations? So what started is a very technical question around AI and machine learning then became a conversation around change management. Other one that I'll mention that I had a lot of fun with was the one with Lizzie that focused on 
kind of the challenges of remote and hybrid work. This one was particularly fun for me because outside of my role with TLC, I study leadership and organizational performance at Vanderbilt. So when it came to talking about what are the impacts on team culture and dynamic and organizational effectiveness, when it comes to the remote experience, a lot of the research is showing that some of the biases and hurdles to people entering the workforce and being valued as, as a teammate have been removed because of remote and virtual work. But we also know that people are feeling a little bit more isolated, a, a little less connected. So how can we hold both of these truths kind of at the same time and move forward and find a solution? So I think those two sessions and those two sort of mini pop-up podcast episodes that we were able to record were, were really fun to be a part of. And, and I think a lot of folks are going to have a good time listening to them as well. A fantastic preview. And I think overall thrilled that we get a chance to actually share those conversations that you had right now. So we have eight conversations spanning eight completely different topics from members in the community. You're going to hear about communication, OKRs, reflections from early days of becoming an engineering leader. We get into the dilemmas of like speed versus quality, the technology shifts and how that affects engineering orgs that Tim mentioned, the challenges with remote and hybrid work, taking pride with accomplishing your goals, something that we just don't do enough of and then generating empathy and having empathy in engineering leadership. So eight speakers, eight different topics coming up in just a moment. But the last question, Tim, some of the biggest impact and paradigm shift you've brought to ELC in your time with us has been amplifying the voices of engineering leaders in our community and really focusing on how can we elevate and put members of the community first in all of the content that we do, all of the events and programs that we have, and really making this a community-driven experience. First off, just wanted to say thank you for everything that you've done to help make that possible within the community. The second thing is people are listening to this. They're like, shoot, I missed out. I want to get involved. Where do you want to point people to to jump in and get involved with the community? I think and I really hope that as folks listen to this episode, if there is a topic that you're thinking through or a challenge that is particularly keeping hold right now when it comes to your your kind of mental bandwidth, right? Want to make sure that, that you know that, that we want to know what it is because I can promise you that you are not the only person that is in eng leadership right now that is having that exact same dilemma and it's easier to be able to work with others. I'm such a believer in that phrase, Patrick, around happiness, shared is doubled mm. and misery shared is halved. So when it comes to celebrating wins, we want to celebrate those. When it comes to addressing challenges and things that are making us, you know, a little anxious and worried, we also want to work through those. So really easiest way to do that is just by reaching out to us. Our inbox at hello at SFELC is always open. We want to hear from you. We want to know what's on your mind because ultimately that's, that's really where the magic happens. So send us a message, hello at sflc.com. And if you're like, shoot, I want to get back involved with the community pop-up podcast booth, our next conference coming up August 30th through 31st, ELC Annual 2023. Come join us. If you want to learn more about that, we've got the link in the show notes. Um, there'll be a little save the date. You can sign up for updates. ELC Annual 2023 coming at you August 30th through 31st. Now, enjoy our conversations with Nate Lee, Jeremy Eastwood, and Dobromir Montauk, Lizzie Matasov, Gaurav Nagam, Mitchell Arnett, Cynthia Tam, Shweta Saraf, and Wen Su. Enjoy these incredible conversations. First up, we have Nate Lee, Chief Information Security Officer at TradeShift, who shares his perspective on effective communication, conflict resolution, critical feedback, and meeting non-technical people with where they're at. Well, Nate, thanks for joining us on the ELC Live podcast. Tell us about yourself. 
My name's Nate. I am the CISO at TradeShift, so responsible for the security program as a whole, engineering, compliance, the, the whole gamut. And you're a longtime ELC member, friend of ELC. A friend of ELC. I like the way that sounds, yeah. We've been going to, to events since the before times when they were in, in various companies' offices and, and just always loved it. I mean, the conversation's always engaging and great insights, so I was happy you were able to, to put something together for us all to get together. What's been your favorite part so far? Meeting people has been much easier than I mean, you're just walking up to people and start talking and having a good conversation. The food line was was a great place for that. So met some really great people and had some good talks there. Uh, the talks that I've attended, also excellent. So overall, great. Nice. That's great. Well, the way that our live podcast works is we want to hear what engineering leaders are passionate about. What do you want to talk about today? We did talk about this, and, and I think communication, it's always one that I like talking about because I think so many people, they get cut off at the knees and they don't even realize it's happening to them. So it's always something with my team that I'm working on because I hate to see that happening to people. And that's how do we, as technical leaders, communicate out or just communication in People in, in general, general, right? Yeah. Like uh, conflict resolution, uh, if you have to speak to execs, uh, knowing your audience and kind of adapting to who they are and, and what are they thinking about this problem? What, what are they going to get out of it? What do you want them to think about it? Uh, and using that to adapt how you speak with them. Being able to know your audience mm -hmm. and speak to them and where they're at. Very much so. It's critical. What are some of the things, because you manage a large team of people, done a lot of coaching of others, you've been in ELC groups, what are some of the, the nuggets or wisdom that you'll try and impart on folks when they're learning? Know your audience is, is really a big one because there's always a wide variety of people you could be talking to and they, they're going to have different backgrounds. Maybe they have an engineering background and you can speak one way, but maybe they've come up from some other area and they're managing a, a BU or something. If you start throwing technical terms, they're instantly going to start writing you off as one of those techies who doesn't get it. Even if you're very knowledgeable in your space, it degrades your message. So that's a, a really big one. Not using too many big words. Some people do that to show off how smart they are in flex, and it usually backfires and makes people wonder why you're using some of those words. That's reasonable. As a non-technical person myself, I appreciate it when people speak to me <laughs> as, a, as a layman. Well, just as another person, right? And I mean, if you were uh, in any other field, doctors don't come and talk to us. Like how when you read a medical paper and you realize how little you know about the field, if they talk to us that way, we would be thinking the same thing. What is this person saying to me? That's fair. Any specific advice or lessons you've learned, especially communicating up maybe mm -hmm. to an executive where you want to be able to be clear and accurate, but also need to kind of meet them where, where they are. The, the first thing is just bottom line on top. What do you want from them? Are they, you trying to get a decision from them? Do you want them to be informed? What's your goal? And straight to the point, don't give the meandering story of why you're thinking this or that. Tell them what you're trying to tell them. And then you can start layering in things that are maybe less relevant as you go on or if they ask for more details, but you really just want to get straight to the point. They have a, a lot of things they're thinking of, uh, a lot of things in their mind. They probably would rather be doing something else. So get your point across, get what you want, supporting facts, have that ready, be prepared is the other one. Uh, because if they do start asking questions and you're not able to answer in a meaningful way, it's another ding against you. So you want to make sure you're, you're really on point there. That's fair. We, I've heard that described as headline first. Put the Headline put, first, yep. Put yeah. the headline up front, and then if you need additional context. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how you would write a, in a newspaper. You put the lead on top, and then uh, the most important stuff and, you know, the things at the end are nice to knows. Any tips when people are maybe preparing communications externally? Is that another angle? Or what other areas, rather, of communication 
do you find people stumble? So we talked about just general know your audience. We talked about communicating up. Any other stumbling points in, in communication? I think giving critical feedback is always one that's difficult for people. Nobody really wants to have to do that, but some of that is how you think about it internally, right? What's your mindset about it? Is it that I'm helping this person or I'm coming here and I'm going to be cutting you down? I really strive to make sure people that I'm working with understand that I'm coming from a perspective of wanting to help them and, and make sure they can feel and see that empathy, make sure I'm understanding is there something else going on? I'm not just coming at you and making it an attack. So a lot of that is just internalizing that you are trying to help and make sure you are actually trying to help and it comes across in, in some of that message and some of that just comes with practice. Uh, the more you deliver that, the less you're uptight and worried about it, but it's meaningful, right? And if you're going to build a strong team, you, you need to be able to give that to people. Are there any lessons you've learned or insights you would impart on someone who may be a new manager providing that critical feedback to employees for the first time? What are your tips and tricks for that audience? I mean, first would be, hopefully, the critical feedback isn't starting from, hey, this has gone horribly wrong. What's what's going on with you, right? Uh, you want to make sure you're also giving them positive feedback in the meantime, and you have an ongoing dialogue. If the only time they see you, you're giving them bad news and telling them they're not good enough, that's that's a really bad foot to start on. So I think a lot of that, the, the groundwork gets laid before you have to bring up the heat and pressure on performance. Usually there's indicators ahead of time, so you can start asking about it and then turn it up gradually. If, you, if you're coming in hot with, hey, this whole thing is a disaster, what's wrong with you? That's probably less likely to succeed. It's, it's, at that point, I've, it's too late. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe not too late, but it's a it's an uphill battle, right? Because now you're still you're going to trigger the defense mechanism in that other person instead of kind of building that connection with them first. You want to have that so they know and understand that you're coming at it from a, a perspective of wanting to help them and not just my manager is out to get me. Are there any resources, books, articles, talks that you found particularly effective on this topic? Radical candor is the one, of course, everybody loves in there and, and being able to balance because you don't want to be also the cold hearted jerk who just I tell people what I'm thinking because I'm very candid and they should take that. I mean, we're all humans and you need to balance that. I think the book did a good job of laying that out and, and helping people figure out where you should be on that continuum and or I guess the, the quadrant as it was in the book. That's certainly a great place to start. There's lots of blogs and such online, but I think that's probably the big one that has helped me think about it from a more a standpoint of, of understanding that it's somewhere between being empathetic to someone and, and giving them advice that's useful. Radical Candor. That's the recommendation. I've read that one. It's very good. I believe it's on our ELC book list online. It's out on your bookshelf. Here. And it's and it's if you're at ELC Annual, you missed it. The first 50 folks got free books. So that I, one, you could have Clearly, I one. walked past it. Clearly. Uh, went straight to the boxed water. That's all right. Yeah, coffee was the, was the priority. Any other final thoughts before we part ways? For people, I think it's it's just really worth it to understand this is something worth spending time on because, again, uh, there's a lot of people who won't tell you that communication isn't necessarily working and it can work against you very easily without you knowing. Fair enough. All right. Well, Nate, thank you so much. Appreciate you being here. Thanks. That was Nate Lee and Kyle Sutton diving into some of their favorite practices for effective communication Next, Gaurav Nigam, VP of Engineering at Workboard, about how OKRs can be used to resync your organization. 
is a question that, that I had for you specifically around a tool or methodology or even a framework really that has made the biggest impact on, on your leadership. Again, knowing that you've been with Workboard since really the beginning and, and starting that, that progression now leading across three different time zones, that, that takes a lot. So curious for, for our listeners, if there's a tool methodology or framework that you feel has, has made the biggest impact. I would say like I was a little fortunate being in a company that built the project around strategy and the key priorities, initiatives, discussions in the top level leadership, right? So that did help me. So where I was going to the methodology that helped me to uh, sharpen my leadership is OKR. I won't hesitate that it's like, you know, we eat our own dog food. <laughs> so it's uh, one of those methodologies that really, really helped uh, in uh, sharpening the leadership that I grew up with the company as yeah. we are evolving the product. So someone who is not aware of what are the objective and key results, these are the methods that help you to align your business outcomes and kind of align it across the organization. So as one of the many focus areas that a leadership has to have it to drive the business outcomes across the board. Right. It doesn't mean that whether you need to do it upstream or you need to do it downstream in your uh, chain of command. But you also take us 10 steps back and kind of 10 steps up to look at how it is going to impact the organization as a whole. Yeah. And, and I think something that, that stands out to me is how do you know that you're still heading in the right direction if you're not don't have something to track against and I think in urgent situations and in emergencies, it can be so so easy to just say, well, we need to we need to be the first ones there. We need to move quickly. But just moving quickly does not mean that you do not track against, establish some of these OKRs uh, to really know that, you know, if you if you've ended up where you don't want to be, it's like, okay, we need to we need to realign. We really need to reprioritize, refocus. But if you don't have those, then then yeah, absolutely. You're, you're sort of just working to, with with no clear boundaries or, or parameters to know that you're headed in the right path. Yep, absolutely. That's the power of alignment, right? With the help of the objective and key results. We are in the entire organization. They are moving uh, with one, uh, you know, mission critical vision and kind of moving it in the same direction. So not the engineering is rowing in a, this direction, product is in that, yeah, and, you yeah. know, like marketing and sales are going like totally in a different boat. It's just that we all row together in a one direction with the help of the OKR. So yeah. if you see that there is a misalignment or there is someone is working on uh, something that is not aligned towards the business priority for that quarter or, you know, mm -hmm. for the longer uh, strategy, then you can immediately have that con conversation. So it does give you that leading indicator. For folks that might be hearing or, or wanting to implement the system around OKRs for, for the first time for their teams or even for their company at large, what's that first step? How, how do you approach something like establishing good, realistic, and usable uh, OKRs for the first time? So not to sound as a salesperson for my company, right? Like first thing, go search for work board <laughs> and uh, kind of uh, approach my sales team to give you a demo of how to uh, do that. But jokes apart, it's first thing that you have to identify what would you gonna measure that will matter you the most, right? So start with identifying the outcomes, mm -hmm. right? Which are very, very relevant for your organization, right? And then when you're organically, you're gonna see the need that, 
hey, now I know what I need to deliver. What are my outcomes for the, what are the outcomes for my organization? And then you can see that like, how can I align with the rest of the organization and the different cross organizational business units? There's no such tool. Can you do it in the spreadsheet? <laughs> or in the PowerPoint. I don't think so, right? So the only way you're going to do it, like where, where, what are the various tools that I can run it with? And then when you do that, when you have this problem statement and just run it in Google, you're going to find us. <laughs> so, so use the tool that can help you to not to uh, make your own strategy and the OKRs as a static. Mm-hmm. rather yeah. dynamic and aligned that is what will drive your digital operating rhythm yeah i i think one of the the takeaways that i'm going to have from this conversation is well frankly two is is one is making sure that we establish okrs in a way that really works for a a cross business approach right that isn't just relevant to to one team but also that the best tool is the one that we use and is the one that might not be perfect today, but as long as we're using it to drive our overall objective forward, that we're, we're going to be in a good place. Well, Gaurav, thank you so much for, for joining us for, for ELC Live here at ELC Annual 2022. Really enjoyed the conversation and hope that you'll join us as, as a guest in the, in the future as well. And we'll see you at future events. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. That was Gaurav Nigam talking about the power of OKRs on alignment. Next, Cynthia Tam, VP of Engineering at GBG Americas, reflecting on her journey to become a VP of Engineering and some of the lessons that helped her along the way. When you look back on on your career, what are some of the things that that you wish you knew about being an engineering leader when, when you first started? I wish... I knew that I didn't have to be liked. Mm. Being liked is not the point. It's being fair and being consistent so the team can trust you. One cannot control where you can be liked or not. But if you're fair and you're consistent, people know what to expect. Mm. I realized the most important thing is to build trust in a team. When there's no risk, there's no art, right? Everybody wants innovation. So if there's no trust, how can you innovate? Because you're afraid to take risk. You don't know how people judge you. But if you build an environment where there's a lot of trust, people will come, will surprise you. And they have surprised me many times. They'll step up and do things because they trust that they can risk it. And yeah. they'll, they can learn from their mistakes. It's fine. As, as a new engineering leader, you can only imagine that, that fear, right, of wanting to perform, wanting to make sure that, that you don't mess up, right, that you don't fail. For folks that, that might be listening right now that have just stepped into their first, you know, EM role or, or taking over a new team, what practices do you recommend to, to kind of remind themselves that, okay, how can I be fair? How can I build trust? is really behaving consistently and observe how other people, how your team is working together, who has helped other people to grow. So put Mm -hmm. that into your equation of who's performing. On your one-on-one, you make that clear. This is how you do things. And when they see it over and over again, they realize, I can't, because Cynthia, I don't know if I agree with her all the time, (laughs) but she's consistent. I have often come to someone and say, you have already worked on capabilities Mm -hmm. and scope beyond your current role. Is it okay I promote you? This is not unusual. You know, over time, people know you're paying attention to what they do, what they do matter. Yeah, and and I think something that I'm hearing is also just 
feeling comfortable with that level of, of candor and, and opening both yourself up to someone saying, hey, Cynthia, you're not being consistent or hey, here's what I'm hearing. But likewise, knowing that if someone is doing really well, is, is calling that out uh, and that, that positive behavior. Now that you're in, in a more senior role, if you were looking to provide that feedback on, hey, I, I think we need to see a little bit more, more consistency from a newer leader, what would the behaviors be around identifying lack of consistency? So how would you identify in, in a newer manager that, hey, maybe this person isn't being as consistent so that our listeners can maybe see, oh, you're right, like I am exhibiting that behavior. Maybe, maybe I should seek a change here. Well, of course, everybody's different. No one is a robot. But I do observe that kind of common theme that when someone's not behaving consistently, there is certain level of fear mm-hmm. that may they may come across. Like, remember, talk about being light. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I care too much about being light, then I may not be myself. Then consistency depends on how I feel at the moment, right? But if you are okay with yourself, you know who you are and you believe in who you are, the consistency is not even a problem. It's that beginning. So working with the manager, you point out that there's certain areas, your message different, or it may have certain impact on the team and, you know, and say, I trust you. And, you know, I would say, be yourself and be authentic with the team. And you see, you know, the cohesion yeah. over time. Part of what I'm hearing too is I think there's, you just have to trust yourself. You know, you've, you've ended up in a leadership role. Someone has trusted you to be yourself and not be someone else. So if you can trust yourself to be the leader that you're meant to be in that role, then hopefully you can trust your your team and, and be consistent in that alignment. So you're not kind of blown to one side to be sure that you're liked by group A and then to the other to be liked by group B and that you're able to, to really work together in the same direction. Imposter syndrome is very real in this world. And I think we have to keep telling ourselves we're here for a reason. We got the role we did for the reason. So it's going to be okay. I, I can think of, of no better or more powerful way uh, to, to end our, our segment with, with Cynthia. Thank you so much for joining ELC Live here at ELC Annual 2022. Really appreciate you and, and your investment in our community. And yeah, looking forward to seeing you at our future events. Yes, definitely. Thank you for all your work. It's great. That was Cynthia Tam sharing about the importance of being fair and consistent. Next, Mitchell Arnett, Engineering Manager at Life360, discusses the dilemma of speed versus quality. So with me right now, I have Mitchell from, from Life360. Really wanted to talk to you about this balance of speed and quality. Uh, and it's something that, you know, a lot of folks in the community, whether they are in a startup or they are in, in that rapid scaling component in that piece, or frankly, some of our, our larger enterprise folks, there's always this conversation around how do we make sure that that our product and what we're releasing is, is good and, and we are more than proud to have our name associated to it, but is, is also done in a way that that is timely and relevant. So want, wanted to get your thoughts again. I, I know that you mentioned that you're transitioning from this tech lead IC role now more into the people side. So wanted to see how, how you structure that debate in your work and, and in your role. It's definitely being able to kind of analyze it from and having a historical context from an IC side. There's a whole context there behind speed and, and quality. Looking at it from the other angle and how people interacting interact those same elements. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, speed and quality is a critical component 
to Life360's culture. We're a mobile application with 40 million plus monthly active users. That's kind of a mix of OnStar crash detection with Apple Find My, where you're looking at the geolocation of loved ones, friends, and family members. Quality is a critical component to our customer experience. We need to be reliable. We need to be fast. We need to be accurate. So whenever we're making major changes to the product, making changes deep in the technical stack, we're always thinking about the speed of delivery of the changes that we're working on, but always holding up to one of our core values from our our CEO, Chris Halls, of quality first, always for everyone, forever. I think from the technical angle, you look at the different technologies that you're using and and don't want to talk about a bunch of technical mumbo jumbo, but you're trying to make sure that you're able to ship things without having to wrangle spaghetti everywhere. You're trying to make sure that the barrier of creating new things is lower and lower. Um, I come from a back-end engineering background, so the ability to create and provision new services was for a long time a very large roadblock in speed. There was a lot of toil and duplicate work in order to create a new service to support some new feature. Um, Over the last two years at Life360, we've tried to get that as close to being a push button experience as possible, where depending on the type of service that you need, you can click a button to provision a lot of the toily things of creating what is needed in the actual source code repository to creating what is needed to actually get that onto our deployment pipelines and get that into a development or production environment. We've taken it from the point where it would take us about maybe six months to provision a new service into production to being able to do that within two days. Um, That was a transition that involved a ton of effort across the entire engineering organization over maybe two and a half years to realize that. It's interesting to me hearing, hearing you share that this philosophical component around the culture at Life360 and how that is then, okay, how can we work to reflect that within our own working norms and environment? So when it comes to that balance and and that culture really around, okay, how do we make sure that this quality that we want to make sure is there for those using our our service and using our product is also there for the folks that are supporting and building the product? How does that start for y'all? I know that you mentioned uh, a really powerful quote from from y'all CEO, but when it comes to, let's say, even the onboarding experience, or as, as you step now into people leadership, what, what are some of the components that you've seen lead to success in that transition of, hey, this is the culture that we have specifically at Life360 around speed and quality? We try to not treat it as an either or. It's not speed or quality. We try to keep it both. We want speed with quality. So some of that comes from the technical side, from those frameworks. From the people side, it definitely is about unifying values about ensuring that everyone, regardless of function, whether you're working in a financial marketing capacity, engineering design, that the understanding and empathy for our user as well as our other peers is upholding our quality standards. So some of that is checks and balances uh, where any business has target dates and desired deliverables. That's all related to speed. All are operating in, you know, with that in the back of mind and trying to always gauge which quality pillars are critical for a particular release, which quality pillars can come at different stages for releasing a new feature experience that's an MVP where we can 
add different functionalities with the quality that we expect at different points. Uh, and it, it's a constant ebb and flow. Uh, we need to be able to deliver as a business, but also realize how critical quality is to our business value prospect to our users. So part of that response, long-winded response is about individually instilling that value across all Life360 employees and across the team. Also recognizing that speed and quality is different within each department and sub-organization of the company. It demands that empathetic response where quality in a financial operations regard is delivering the same level of service in the most financially responsible way possible, which our shareholders love. Quality in an engineering capacity could mean having the most resilient, fail-safe possible service built for a particular feature. And you have to be empathetic and ensure that every department is heard and understood and you're balancing across all of that. There isn't one uniform quality. There isn't one uniform speed, even within a single organization. Yeah, I, I think what is going to be my my main takeaways from our chat here today is one leading with empathy. Uh, I think that that last component that you shared around, how do we make sure that when we do face some of these pressures to have us choose in some way, shape, or performer on speed or quality, how do we make it an and? Which again, I think as another takeaway is, yeah, you can have both. How do we how do we prioritize? How do we make sure that our teams are, are structured and aligned across different areas of the business to, to perform in that way? And not to call it low-hanging fruit, but how do we identify some of those blockers, right? Um, whether that is templatizing pieces or whether that is different types of tooling, how do we make sure that we are removing some of those barriers that, that prevent us from choosing the and option between speed and quality. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This has been a really good conversation. Thank you for joining ELC Annual. Yeah, thanks, Tim. That was Mitchell Arnett discussing speed versus quality. Next, we have Jeremy Eastwood, head of engineering at Drone Deploy, and Dobermeer Montauk, VP of engineering at Doxel.ai discussing how technology shifts impact engineering organizations. To bring you a little bit behind the scenes, we actually caught Jeremy and Dobermeer mid-conversation at ELC Annual, and we asked them to come jump into the booth, and they were kind enough to indulge us, jump into the booth, hit record, and let us listen in. So we are dropping you right in the middle of their conversation on the rise of machine learning and some of the business dilemmas building an ML product and making the right bets on your ML strategy. Enjoy. Start basic. Have some people annotate that. Have like, do whatever. But like from the customer's perspective, they get something. Yep. And what machine learning is, is accelerating that and doing it automatically and the rest of it. Yes. And yes. it's like, I think that's the other thing we really struggled with is like, we're going to have a machine learning solution to this. It's got to be perfect. It's like, no, it's never going to be perfect. It's machine learning. It's a model. It's mostly correct or 98% correct or whatever. But if you need it to be perfect every time, that's like a different problem yep. you're trying to solve. Yep. It's like an acceleration or a smart guide or stay away from saying clippy for things. Yeah, exactly. Like becoming a machine learning company is you have to have a mindset shift yeah. in what you build and how you build it in a way that I think most people, you know, mindset shifts for or engineering organizations are always difficult. The big ones we've seen in our career is like becoming a mobile first company. That was a huge mindset shift. Google didn't really successfully do it, at least not at first. Facebook pulled it off at scale, which was really impressive. But basically, it was, again, the CEO on down said, oh, shit, we're a mobile-first company, even though we only have a desktop app. 
we are becoming mobile first. And that goes all the way down to like how you structure your teams. Do you have a desktop team and then like this tiny little small mobile team that's kind of trying to keep up with the desktop team? Oops, that's never gonna work. And so now really we're not. Or do you go, sorry, desktop team, you are disbanded. You do not exist anymore. Instead, we have a team for timelines, which is building mobile and this and right and back, and, up, back up your bets because now you're putting resources and saying if, if we're mobile first, if it's eighty percent of our revenue, eighty percent of our customers, there, eighty percent of our engineering organ effort should be behind that yeah. or more. Like, wh where are we putting our right? And so the bigger you get, the harder it is to do the mindset shift and say we are a different kind of company, different technology company, even than we were before uh, when the technology you know S curves start to you know to catch up with you. Yeah. And so most people don't, don't do it. Like at Google. We did, the, we did the opposite, right? So I was on Google Plus at the time and we had the timelines. I was running the timelines team. Yeah. And so we were mostly desktop. And then mobile was starting, this was 2010 to 2012. So mobile was starting to be a thing. And we're like, we need mobile. So we built a mobile team. I wasn't talking to the mobile team. I kept talking to the desktop team because that's the relationship I had. And I was like, yeah, this mobile thing on the side, sure. Like, you know, and it's not prioritized. It's not a P0, it's a P2. Because yeah. you first, oh, we'll launch a desktop because that's easy to do and we're ready. And then mobile will catch up someday. Great, you just failed in your strategy. Yes. Machine learning is the same way. You can't bolt it on and say, oh, we'll have a couple people working on machine learning on the side here. Right? Go figure out, build something useful, and then the company will shift to becoming a machine learning company. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Like, either you go, we're blowing everything up, and we're a machine right. learning company, and from the ground up, like, machine learning is in every single part of our, every single decision we make. So you think you can't place it as a, as a small bet off the fact. You have to say, look, we're going to, this is it. Everything's going to be machine learning. Yeah, I haven't seen the former be successful. Interesting. Is that because it can't inherently drive enough value by itself it's bolted on or it's like why is it so fundamentally different to have a machine learning driven organization versus like a feature you're bolting on or functionality you're bolting on because i think it's, it's a wag the dog problem it is a tail wagging or is a dog wagging you decide which one's a dog and which one's a tail so by default the dog is you know it's the it's the core bulk of your organization the bulk of your organizations you know they've always done x and then you try to bolt on the tail and now you're saying but the tail needs to wag the dog it's like no it works the tail has not enough people not enough resources not enough credibility you really haven't changed the incentive structure of your organization. So suddenly they're like fighting the current. I see. So you're saying like, if you're adding, if it's, it's a bolt on, you say, okay, maybe it's going to drive some extra revenue. So it's worth investing a person. Yep. And, and have they now generated the 10x, their value, you know, their cost? No, because... They need a lot more resources to actually deliver something meaningful. Yeah, because they're going to come back and they'll be like, oh, yeah, for the thing you want us to do, we need to change that entire side of your technology stack or that entire way we do business. And you'll be like, oh, we're not going to do that. And it's like, okay, great. You know, you just kneecap them. It's just hard to pre-package like package machine learning. So instead of viewing it as a product or feature, it's really more of a culture at that point that you're, that you're trying to tackle. Yeah, and it's to some degree it's deeper than culture because it's a technology strategy which drives the culture, or maybe the culture drives the technology strategy. I don't know which. I think at that point it, it, it becomes a it becomes a much larger conversation. I do also think we found our topic. We'll keep it at machine learning if that works for both of y'all. We can even do like technology. How do technology? shifts affect engineering organizations or how you drive engineering organizations to the technology shifts. Machine learning is just actually an example. And I've seen a few examples. I've seen mobile into our world back in 2010. I saw, uh, obviously, the internet. That's a big one. But I guess none of us were really yet in the <laughs> Lest we forget the internet. Well, sure, but like Google, I joined Google in 2005 and that was 
not the beginning, it was maybe the end of the beginning of the internet curve, but you could see which companies were not able to do the shift to SaaS and internet software, right? That was, again, you can't bolt it on afterwards and be like, oh, you know what? We're going to have this little SaaS product on the side. And there were some successful companies. Microsoft, surprisingly, was able to do the shift, right? Mm. From desktop to internet software. Adobe was a real shocker. Nobody expected Adobe to be able to do the shift from Photoshop on your desktop to SaaS, but they did. Then mobile happened. And then machine learning is happening, right? We're in that middle of that shift. And some companies are transitioning and some are not, or some companies are being founded with that culture and some are not. And I think the next shift, and this is the reason I'm, uh, I went to Doxel, is going to be computer vision. I think that's going to be a fundamental S-curve that we're going to go through in the technology space where computers will understand the physical world. And that's going to be, you just need to know how to do that as an engineering organization. It's like, same as you know how to use a database. It's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I know how to make my computer understand the physical world because that's what the product is asking me to do and that's just a thing we do. So I think next 10 years, and you guys are very much in that space as well. Yeah, it's all, as all kind of digital reality capture. And I mean, we've always been kind of using drones to map the real world and capture that. And yeah, it's so much simpler once you bring the kind of big, complex, dispersed world into the computer. You can just bring everyone together and collaborate. I mean, it's collaboration and efficiency and, and doing kind of analysis, checking up, doing inspections, that kind of stuff. But yeah, computer vision is the core kind of um, building block of, of what the company is. And as you said, it's kind of understanding the world. So it's going beyond computer vision and saying, okay, we've reconstructed reality. We've now got a map or a 3D model of this construction site or something every mm-hmm. single day. What do we care about? Like, what are we actually trying to track over time? Mm. We want to look at what's changed, what was built versus designed. So it's having like intelligence about, okay, I understand, I can, it, it comes back to machine learning, right? It's like, I can understand where the doors are, where the walls are, and I compare that to the plans and all the rest of it. So it's adding that extra layer on top of it. Part of what I'm hearing from, from both of you when it comes to these technology shifts is whether you succeed or fail is what is the end in mind that you're aiming towards? Like it shouldn't just necessarily be the shift for shift's sake. That there should be, okay, we, we know that we're going to use this and leverage this technology to be able to support our larger initiative and, and be able to use it thoughtfully as opposed to just because right now it is the, the trending thing. And going back to the, is this a dog wagging its tail or is the tail wagging its dog? Uh, Uh, And not necessarily just seeing new technologies that, oh, well, okay, let's devote a little bit to it and then let it run its course. Yeah, that's right. It's like you have to design your organization to accomplish the mission that you're trying to accomplish. And I think as engineering leaders, we tend to think about the technology that we need to go do less than about the capabilities we need to create within the organization. And what's really interesting about mapping the physical world, understanding the physical world, it requires all sorts of new capabilities that engineers, especially going through the internet age, uh, have not built and were not natural. And I remember at, uh, you know, at Google sort of invented the idea of an SRE and site reliability engineer, right? That was not, that didn't exist when you sold desktop software. There was no site to be reliable. I give you the software and it's your freaking problem. Good luck. And then suddenly you're like, wait, no, we need a whole new discipline gets invented of making the site reliable. And so when I went to Docs, I was like, wait, do we need the same thing but different because of the physical nature of what we do. Like our physical captures need to be reliable. What is that? Is it site reliability engineer? Not really, because it's not just the software needs to be reliable. It's our entire in-field processes need to be reliable. Any robotics company is going through the same thing. Is this operational arm of your software 
operating in the physical world, as well as in the machine learning arm and the data arm, right? We inherit a bunch of pieces that existed from other companies, right? The data side, we inherit. The real-time serving, we inherit. The web part, we inherit. But bolting on new capabilities that without them, we cannot accomplish the mission of understanding the physical world. Yeah, so what is the actual problem you're trying to solve? It's people don't care about the capturing the data. They care about the answers. So for that solution, we need to have smooth operations, reliable capture, and then all the analysis that comes kind of after that. And so if you come back from, well, what's the value to to the customer? It is having magically, automatically, I now get insights about my site, my whatever it is that you're kind of mapping. And so what is the technology we need to enable that? So it's like operations, computer vision, automatic analysis on top of that. And they all have to be kind of streamlined and, and work together. Otherwise, you've got half a solution and it's just not as attractive to people. I know that right now we're we're viewing it through the lens of, of machine learning. But for folks that might be listening and just thinking through a technology shift or implementing a new modality or process, what have y'all seen be successful in, in your teams and in your experiences as, as end leaders to lead successful transformations and lead successful shifts? <laughs> sure. Um <laughs> That's tough. I mean, one of the things I think we touched on it before is is actually placing your bet there in a meaningful mm. way. So it's not going, I mean, it's true for, for most big decisions, like not going in half-hearted, not saying we're going to hire one extra person to do this. So we're going to spend 20% of our time mm-hmm. starting this, this new initiative. It's like, this is where we believe. Let's kind of reconstruct the teams. We're going to do this bet. We're going to move to this new product side. Okay, great. Well, we're going to have to overinvest here to start with. We're starting from zero to one. Let's put half of our engineering resources behind this new area. And so we'll arrange the teams to do that. We'll reconfigure things. And that's, you know, we're meaningfully placing a bet there. So you've really got to kind of bet on yourself and, yeah. and, and back that. If it's always like the second priority or a lower investment area, it's going to kind of wither and die. Yeah, I think one of the recent times I did this was I was a Twitter uh, and I was responsible for the advertising platform of Twitter. So it's one of the larger serving systems at Twitter. Uh, every request came to it you know, in order to figure out which ads to show. Big machine learning components to it, which was a separate team, but they lose the platform. And then a very big data component. I think we were something like 80 or 90% of like Twitter's data pipelines, spending like $100 million a year or so just on, on machines. When I took it over, the, the system, everybody, all the engineers were complaining about it. And when we looked at it, we said, fundamentally, the problem is we're using Twitter infrastructure, which is years behind the state of the art. We could try to rebuild it, but it makes no sense. We should just move it into the cloud. Mm -hmm. And so the big transition we planned and then we executed over the next several years was moving Twitter's ads data into GCP, into the cloud, into BigQuery and streaming and all that. And the way you end up executing that, I mean, to be stark, you got to fire the right people first. Mm-hmm. You have to find the people that are not interested in that. And either you move them into the different parts of the org, right? yeah. or you fire them, or you, know, you promote somebody above them. Right? But you basically have to remove them as bottlenecks in the transition. you got to find your allies. you got to find the people who are excited about the mission. Mm-hmm. Right? People are like, yeah, we got to go do that. That's what I want to do. You've got to put them in positions of authority, of being able to execute and then, you know, get out of the way and give them the, the airspace because it takes longer than expected. It's more expensive than expected. <laughs> like all, whatever, you know, whatever plans you come up with, you have to give them the air cover to actually execute it. And it took us about, I think, you know, four or five years to fully execute it, right? Over two, three years, we had already made a lot of progress. And yeah. there's a bunch of blog posts about how they ended up doing that. Uh, and the reason I was just talking to a Twitter person about they wanted to do the same thing with the serving systems. So not the data side, but the serving side. And they took, a, it seems sounded to me like they took a completely wrong approach, which is, oh, we will hire a team, a separate team to go do that. But we'll just keep doing things the same way. 
Mm, I'm going to hire a separate yeah. team and make them be responsible for it. And it's like that. Yeah, guy, who's going to make the decision to actually move over them? It never works, right? <laughs> it's like, no, you're either one or the other. Like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Pick your strategy, right? And that's a hard thing to do because it means you're going to yeah. you're going to break some hearts. And and I think kind of combining what both of you have shared, I'm a big fan of the you can't have your cake and eat it too kind of approach. And recently, I, I heard a rephrase of that. Of, you can't have your cake and eat it too, at least not at the same time, right? So th- there is that component of if you're going to make the bet, you need to make it and if it doesn't work then you you're allowed to learn and recognize that hey yep bet didn't pan out how do we take this and, and learn from that approach and, and not necessarily see it as a as a or it can be an and one of the biggest because otherwise you just get paralyzed by indecision right like why would you ever make that big bet if you know it has to succeed at all costs and you've got to have a high degree of set, like confidence that this is the right direction but yeah some things are going to not work out as well there was a really good session yesterday on um, engineering reorgs and how do you track that and i think was something mentioned was really nice was actually have some metric of success and so obviously like moving to new infrastructure that's kind of easy like yeah. you, you achieve that <laughs> um, but there's some kind of metric of success for this big shift and then that's the thing that you you kind of track to so you make sure that you complete the vision like initially you want to move to this new technology or team structure or whatever why do you want to do that what do you think that the big win there is going to be and then have that as some kind of measurable in some sense and keep coming back to that like did we achieve that and then help bring everyone along with you like this is the kind of like the north star the inspiring Mm, goal for mm. why we're going to do this and then we did this or we we didn't quite do this as you said we should learn from this why did it not hit as well and when all the energy of the reorg starts to wear off and you know the day-to-day and the execution if you don't have that north star and the vision of like hey this is why we did it we haven't accomplished it yet yep and then people lose focus yeah Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining. This has been a great conversation. I, I think my main takeaways, one, starting from the, the philosophical lens, really, of identifying why we want to make this technology shift in the first place, and knowing that if if that rationale is strong enough that we need to make a, a decision, and sometimes those are people decisions, and making sure that we have the right people, and if we don't have the right people there to make it a successful transition, that sometimes that means transitions, and sometimes that means difficult conversations, but ultimately, if if we keep that end goal in mind, you know, you mentioned that North Star, then we really need to commit to it. And then on the technology side is, is knowing that it's going to require investment, and that is a, a conversation that has its own different different facets to it. But if we really see a a technology shift as the right idea, then we need to commit to it in in both facets. This has been, again, wonderful conversation here at ELC Live uh, for the ELC podcast at ELC Annual 2022. Thank you both for joining. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. That was Jeremy Eastwood and Dobermir Montauk. Next, Lizzie Matasov co-founder and CEO at Quotient, who talks about navigating hybrid and remote work, getting the most out of in-person community events and meetups again, and the impact of belonging on engineering output and effectiveness. 
I uh, want to make sure that I'm able to, to ask you, Lizzie, like, what have you thought so far about ELC Annual uh, and your experience here with us? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I think the experience that has stuck out the most for me has been one in which there's so many of these sort of smaller sessions that are centered around a specific topic, and they might have sort of an individual in charge of presenting that topic to the group. But I've found that unlike other conferences that I've been to, where there's sort of one leader of the topic and everybody's here to sort of listen to their perspective, there's so much knowledge sharing across that small group of people. So for example, and we're talking about remote work, and even just a similar topic in two different groups has divulged into completely different sort of angles of it. And it's a lot of people sharing their perspectives, sharing their experiences, and having others take away how did it work at their organization or what did their engineering team do to solve a certain problem. So I think I've just really loved how much shared knowledge and shared respect there is for other people's experiences as opposed to maybe a traditional conference where you're just here to listen to one person sort of echo out their experiences. With that sort of format change, and I'm glad you, you mentioned that, something that I've loved seeing and really overhearing is the passion in which folks are talking about their experience just candidly and recognizing that, oh, everyone in this space that's sitting here at this table or in line at the coffee bar understands what I'm talking about and understands it deeply. Yeah, and usually the topics are, I think within the engineering organizations, there's obviously the technical challenges that people mm. are going through. So many of the conversations I've had with folks have been a lot about like the human side of engineering, which is something that I care deeply about. And in this changing landscape where we've been through a crazy two plus years and the dynamics of how we work with one another has changed dramatically. That's been the topic on a lot of people's minds is not just what technologies do we use to solve this problem, but how do we come together as a team in this new sort of environment and be our best and perform our best and feel our best, which has been a hard question with no right answer. Yeah. Well, before we get into this topic around remote and supporting folks in in that way, really want to get your thoughts on, right, this is a in-person and for, for us, it is our first in-person conference since 2019. So a lot of community members have, have mentioned almost having to relearn how to do this, right? Like how to do the, okay, I'm just going to walk up to a table and, and sit down and say my name and my title and then start sharing. So I was, was wondering in terms of what that experience has been like and if you have any tips or pointers that you'd want to give to folks that are thinking and considering, okay, I think I'm ready to start kind of networking and, and engaging with the engineering leadership community, whether through here at EL see or in other spaces? Yeah, my perspective on that is I think we often think we're the only one feeling a certain way. Mm. So for example, when you walk up to a group, there's that sense of discomfort you feel where you don't want to interrupt their conversation or you feel uncomfortable and that sort of psychs you out so that you don't even reach out and say hello. Everyone is having that shared experience. (laughs) So I try to remind myself that as much as I can, that if this feels uncomfortable to me, I think we're all getting through that discomfort together as a group. And I think that we are often our own biggest critics or sort of biggest roadblock. I mean, it's something that I've learned a lot in the last couple of years, moving from being an engineer or a team lead to being now a founder of a company is that we are absolutely our biggest sort of 
roadblock in terms of our potential and our capabilities. And in these moments, for example, we are networking with engineering leaders that have so much to offer and so much to share. It's natural to feel like maybe you don't have as much to offer, but that's not true. You offer your unique, diverse perspective on a matter, and that is so valuable. So I think my advice is just to stop getting in your own way so that you can increase the sort of potential that you have at an event like this for gaining the most from other people. Yeah. And I think that that phrase, I'm going to steal it and keep it with me of stopping <laughs> Stop getting in my own way, I think is a, is a good segue as we discuss how do we empower the folks on our team for us to almost get out of their way as they are either joining our teams or, or transitioning to new roles. Again, as you mentioned, the last two years, two and a half years have, have been such a new challenge and environment. And now that, you know, for, for some folks that I've talked to over the last couple of days, it's, you know, just when I started feeling like I had it figured out, it's, well, okay, do we go to hybrid? Do we go in person again? Or suddenly it's like we've changed the, the rules of the game again. So curious to, to hear your thoughts on what are some of those practices that, that you've seen be successful? Uh, when it comes to establishing that that culture that we're talking about? Yeah, well, it's a topic near and dear to my heart. So throughout the pandemic, I've been trying to solve this question that I've had for years and years in my head, which is what are the bottlenecks that prevent us from growing strong, diverse, resilient engineering teams? What are some common ways that we can strengthen teams altogether? Because there's the technology part is really easy compared mm-hmm. to some of the more nebulous, challenging uh, side of humans, which is, you know, our behaviors and how we interact with one another. And then throw in a pandemic where, you know, we've got two years of crippling anxiety, not just around like the global health situation, but also how do we lead and organize teams, especially from the perspective of leaders where you often have to be the the one stitching together calm Mm -hmm. in a world of chaos. And so that's something that we've been exploring a lot over the last few years. And the company that I'm building, it's called Pathlight. And our big goal is to basically help ramp up engineers remotely by throwing away the sort of 30, 60, 90 day document that has sort of led the onboarding world uh, in all of these previous years. And the reason why is because the playbook for how we ramp up engineers, whether it's external to internal, has been the same for a very long time. Um, And as we're talking about this, the world has changed dramatically. And so when we think about culture, I'm sure many of the folks listening to this podcast can think of a moment where they remotely ramped up a new engineer to their team and they felt like that team member never quite got integrated in the same way as their pre-COVID cohort, if you will. Um, And so we're trying to sort of break the mold of what it looks like to ramp up engineers now so that they can do so in a much more efficient, fun, and team-driven fashion. And then on the other side, we can help empower both the managers and the overall team to understand what it looks like to basically build a new unit when new individuals join or leave. Because that's what a team is. A team is comprised of your members. But we, at least at Pathlight, believe that the team is actually greater than the sum of its individuals. So when new people leave or when someone joins, it's it's a completely different team makeup. And, you know, we want to harness that power in an asynchronous, remote, yeah. hybrid world and help engineering teams improve with that. Yeah, something that, that stood out to me, uh, I felt like an emotional, visceral reaction was the throwing away of the 30, 60, yeah. 90. Because in all places, in all things, you can just say, oh, yeah, I just joined this place. It's like, I've got some goals for the first month and two months and three months. And it's just the dumb thing. It's like breathing. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to 
to go somewhere. This is how it's supposed to work, right? And and that's just what we're told. So I would challenge engineering leaders to ask themselves, when was the last time you checked how long the things <laughs> in your 30, 60, 90-day plan actually took? Yeah. And whether your engineers have read that document and used it in full. Because we have heard some wild stories from engineers and from managers about their experience with these documents. But of course, there's nothing else that has come out, right? There's no product that basically fills this void and, and takes away that pain for managers. So we're trying to sort of come in and, and solve that problem, but then also just in general become the sort of application and analytics toolkit that helps engineering teams, you know, be their best. Yeah. Something that I also think is is interesting that, that has stood out to me is when you talk about teams, because what, what I hear a lot of is that a team is defined by its output. When in reality, we know that to your point, the team is made up of, of humans, each playing their own part. And when they come together, something special happens. And that is either a success or a failure, but deemed only by the, the end result. When sometimes there can be a lot of learning that has happened. There can be a lot of support that has now made that team, even though they might appear right now to be struggling, ultimately they're being set up for success later on down the road. So I'm curious when it comes to this more team-centered and, and focusing almost on the connections and the specialness of that, how do you all visualize that integration occurring? Yeah. It's a really fascinating and challenging topic. I mean, it's what I feel like as I walk around this conference, I'm speaking to so many individuals about understanding how to either quantify it or, right. or think about it or kind of call out what is happening. What is that magic? And it's, it's not easy. So we're pulling on some uh, interesting elements of behavioral research for a lot of the work that we do. So for example, one of the amazing pieces of, of research that we keep pulling on that I've shared probably 50 times at this conference <laughs> is this concept of burstiness in the way you communicate with your team. For example, uh, this paper, um, which is done by Anita Woolley at, I believe, Carnegie Mellon, says that short, quick bursts of communication on a team tends to lead to more quote unquote, productive output than uh, long stretches of async in which, you know, a person asks a question and an hour later, someone gets a response and an hour later, you get another response. Um, and so there's just pieces like that where you're starting to understand what are the inner workings of a team yeah. that sort of come together to create that output. And to your point, it's easier to look at a team based on the output, but I don't think that's always the right thing to do. Now, the challenging aspect of it, and I'm sure many engineering leaders agree with this, is that engineering tends to be a little bit more seen as a black box than other groups within an organization. And it's because, you know, there's that technical element that you need to have sort of that depth of knowledge to understand. But I think that along the way in our search for finding a way to translate what engineering does, we've lost sight of the human aspect that comes into it, which is that there are individuals solving complex problems together to create incredible products that we all use today. And so we're trying to figure out how do we sort of quantify and highlight some of those factors so that we can help teams be their best, not just based on output, but also based on all the pieces that come between the inputs and the outputs. That is so unique because it really is a paradigm shift that a lot of people and you know what what I end up hearing a lot supporting the community members through our events and things like that is other business units just see us as x 
at yep. see us as, as the space where the things that we talk about, they can't really understand. So the issues that we have on why we need to push back a deadline or why we need more resources, it's it's almost like we're not just not reading from the same book. It's we're speaking totally different languages. And I think that brings us to this conversation around like empathy, right? And to your point, like how do we on-ramp and how do we bring people into teams to become comfortable in a culture like that, to become comfortable and willing participants and willing to not just be a part of the culture, but to exemplify it, to elevate it and really support the building of visibility, the building of trust, which I think is also an important component to it all as folks join companies. A hundred percent. And maybe like one final thing I'll add is when we think about engineering teams and how to sort of understand how they operate and what they produce, I think the natural line we draw is to this field called, you know, engineering productivity or developer mm-hmm. productivity, which I think is critical. And I love so many of the efforts that have been done to improve engineering productivity. Our perspective is that we actually take one step back and say, there's this broader term of engineering effectiveness. Productivity is a big piece of that. And another big piece of that is belonging, right? Mm-hmm. And that belonging piece is actually what I think in uh, the sort of new hybrid era is even more difficult to sort of figure out and understand because it's sort of a feeling, but there are ways, especially within the engineering sort of software development life cycle that you can start to get a measure of belonging. For example, you know, how soon does a new engineer get included in the pull request culture of their overall team, right? That's a huge engineering specific way of maybe thinking about what does belonging on your team look like? And so we love the world of engineering productivity. We also love the world of engineering belonging. And we think those two things are critical pieces of engineering effectiveness. And we need to look at the full picture in order to really understand how are our teams basically working together, especially when they're all over the country or world, you yeah. know, trying to build one product together. <laughs> I think my, my big takeaway from, from this conversation is going to be one of how do we redefine what success on our teams look like, especially as we're bringing folks along for the ride. Sometimes we see someone accepting an, an offer to join our, our team and our company as, as the finish line. Really, it's just the start. Uh, of hopefully a really good relationship, a really great time for for both parties. But we need to be intentional around how do we focus on that productivity and belonging and and make sure that as we start to encounter some some challenges, because we all do, and and hit some of those first roadblocks, that we've built a a culture that is resilient, that is diverse, and, and ultimately gets us to where we want to go as opposed to just where we are gonna end up based on what we have. Thank you so much for for joining us. This has been a really good conversation. Before I let you go, though, want to see if there are any tips for someone that really wants to start having conversations around belonging within their engineering teams. Is there something that you've seen be kind of a good first question to ask or a good first way to look in the mirror and say, okay, is my team one where folks feel like they belong? Yeah, 100%. What I'll suggest is that I think oftentimes, you know, and and we're doing this too as a company, we're trying to find data to help us answer a question. And it's it's very natural for engineers to be data-driven and it's actually really critical. (laughs) But I think one of the easiest sort of first things that an engineering leader can do is ask their team, do you feel like there's a strong sense of belonging on this team? And you might be really surprised to find the answer, especially, you know, we've seen, for example, with COVID, this interesting trend within certain companies where they've got a cohort of folks on their team that all knew each other pre-COVID and they work really closely with one another. And then you've got a lot of these newer engineers who 
joined within the last two years and they work within each other Mm -hmm. and you've got almost this interesting little silo. And if you actually just go and ask them like, hey, what's your sense of the sense, you know, of of what belonging on this team looks like? You might be really surprised to find the answer. I, I think, you know, it's always hard to get an honest perspective from engineers, particularly when you're in the position of being, you know, their manager. But when you ask these sort of open ended, curious questions with no agenda in mind, you might be really surprised to find the answer that can give you that first sort of hint into how you can strengthen the belonging on your team. Lizzie, thank you again for for joining us on the podcast and for really being a part of our in-person experience, I think. Again, as as we think about how do we share learning, how do we share experiences candidly? Unfortunately, I'm someone that has to sometimes learn the hard way as opposed to asking for help uh, and really relying on on mentors and things. So it's been great being able to see folks and and be a part of these conversations here at ELC Annual. Thank you again for, for joining. That was Lizzie Matisov, CEO and co-founder of Quotient, diving into remote work, onboarding, and belonging. Lizzie actually joined us as a guest on our Engineering Founders podcast to share the origin story behind Quotient, plus some incredible insights on fundraising in the current market. Check it out. There's actually a link to that episode in the show notes if you're interested. Next, we have Shweta Saraf, Director of Platform Engineering at Netflix, talking about the power of taking pride with accomplishing goals. In the world of engineering leadership, you you have to wear a lot of hats. And you always have to be thinking about a lot of different things going on. And in that pursuit, right, of, of the next goal, whether it is a feature uh, or whatever it might be, sometimes we we get a little caught up in, in what's next and not necessarily just celebrating the fact that, hey, like we, we just accomplished something really awesome. So I was wondering in that sort of spirit of, of recognizing achievement, if you wouldn't mind describing a time that, that you felt proud of yourself as, as an engineering leader. Yeah, so you're spot on. As engineers who have become engineering leaders in our career, we often don't really take time to celebrate. Uh, In my role, uh, which is head of engineering at Edge Infrastructure at Equinix, a big part of how I like to lead my organization is creating that culture of celebration, right? So every month in our town hall, we have peer recognition where people can celebrate each other and call out what they're proud of. Uh, Going back to the time where I felt that joy or pride of something I accomplished. As a leader, I mean, uh, first of all, I want to say, like, I definitely understand it's not the same when I was an engineer, right? Because I would push a PR, I would see the code doing its work, and I could get that instant gratification. But in my role as a leader, sometimes the timeline for an impact could be really long, right? Like months or maybe even a year to say, okay, I did this change, and this is how it's manifested. This is what we learned from it. Uh, One of the moments that I'm really proud of is uh, right when the pandemic started, the startup I worked for got acquired by a big company, Equinix, right? So the time couldn't be stranger and we were all sort of going into the unknown, but I'm really proud of like looking back and connecting those dots, like how I was able to, you know, gather my strength and uh, survive those times, but not only survive and thrive in the sense that we were able to have that successful acquisition, lead the team through that whole process and emerge stronger. But not only that, we were able to double our revenue, grow the team by threefold and really deliver customer value in terms of products that customers really like, but also introducing 
something like on-demand way of provisioning a bare metal cloud to the world of Equinix and its customers, right? So I'm really proud of the whole journey, not just like one moment, but the journey I went through with my team in terms of going from a startup of less than 100 people yeah. to becoming a part of 10,000 plus people company <laughs> and sort of bringing those mindsets, cultures and everything together at the same time generating value for our customers, which have like just multiplied yeah. by that effect. The piece that I think is, is is forgotten so often is that of time horizons, right? And I, I couldn't agree with you more. The the instant gratification of the the winning and, and and the feeling of accomplishment. And I see it so much more different than when you're a people leader. Sometimes it might be, hey, I'm actually really proud and feel really good that someone that I used to manage now got a promotion. Or the type of winning I think changes. And and I think to your point, an organization growing takes time, but you have an impact in that. When it comes to internally and taking those moments to, to pause, I know that you mentioned for your company and for your team, you know, the town halls and some of those structures. How do you build in that that sort of self-recognition? Do you have any tips for folks that might be listening? You touched upon a lot of facts there, right? Like leaders are not good at putting themselves first or celebrating. The way I think about it is as a leader, you're in service to your organization, right? You're the biggest cheerleader of your organization. You're there to remove uh, blockers and yeah. really create a multiplier effect. So for me, something that I picked up from another leader was creating my own sort of, I don't want to say brag list, but like achievement list. It's not meant to be published or distributed necessarily, but it is something that you put down because, you know, it's it's hard to remember what all you have done when (laughs) you look back because, as you said, we are wearing so many hats day in and day out, right? You're always in service too, so it's hard to kind of have that level of self-awareness in terms of acknowledging that you had a role to play in this just like everybody else and that's how I feel you build winning teams when you truly believe that everybody has a role to play and your job as a leader is to activate that right and bring out the best potential in people and it could manifest in different ways where the team is uh, truly engaged and creates features at a record period of time or someone who started as an intern is now a flourished leader and is doing excellent work even elsewhere so I I do feel or or I think the best part for me is when I do mentoring I do a lot of mentoring outside of work as well and oftentimes like I get messages like thank you for this it changed my life or it had a big impact for my life and I feel like that's my way of paying it forward and that's how I feel that okay what I did created some value some legacy right and think about that a lot like what what am I gonna leave behind in terms of the way the work I'm doing impacted the industry or the people or even for my family to like look back and remember me with the values or the love that I give them yeah and something that's been so good about getting to to connect in person at annual this year has been around this concept of of leading with empathy that that I've been hearing from from a lot of the members in our community and that approach and and what I'm hearing you say around and it's sometimes what we do and how we make the biggest change as leaders that we should recognize for is the impact that we have on on others and that multiplying effect, right? If if I know that today I, as a leader, empowered someone else to lead even uh, is, is really where that exponential behavior and, and that culture of, of support is really worth, worth celebrating. To get to that point, though, I, I, I think is where sometimes it's hard to even know where we need to go to be able to celebrate a win. You have to know that you got there. As we've now started and kind of been discussing, let's call it the end of of accomplishment, right? You get to that finish line and you feel great. What about when you're at the start line? 
what are some of the ways that that you go about establishing goals for yourself? And what's a paradigm that you have around establishing goals so that again, in, in the future, we can hopefully celebrate that or just learn from from the attempt? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And to me, I think of it as a twofold way of doing it, right? Providing clarity to your organization as a leader is like number one task you have, right? And that means eternalizing what's the strategy, what's the vision of the company and how your teams are going to play their role in fulfilling that vision, right? But to make it also quantitative as well as qualitative, like something we do at my company is we follow this system called as EOS, which is Enterprise Operating System. You have an operating system uh, for your computer. There is a system created for engineering leaders, right? Which kind of gives you a playbook of how do you plan? How do you provide clarity? How do you measure? How do you know what you're learning and how do you iterate, right? So one of the things that we do in order to set clear goals is like we plan on a yearly basis in terms of strategy vision, but also translate that into quarterly rocks and Rocks are our way of aligning what is measurable, what what delivers business value and what can be really achieved versus something which is like designed to be achieved only 70% like an OKR, right? So that's how we think about it. And then uh, it's also bottoms up and tops down. And then the teams are empowered to think about pebbles and sand that they still get to work on, right? But rocks is something that if needed, all the teams will rally together to make sure we take it past the finish line. And then obviously it's it's not necessarily time driven, but it's more outcome driven and is something that we want to work on as a unit. So that's how we go about setting clear rocks. And oftentimes uh, we rely on our systems to give us strong signals in terms of how we are doing. So we invest a lot in observability and KPIs and metrics and tools. But as I was telling someone at the conference today, metrics without context can be a very sharp tool. The number one thing I like to think about is how can we train our leaders to make sure that we are using the data with correct context and then using it as an insight to learn and iterate. And one thing I do personally is we have a weekly all hands meeting in which we review the top three metrics for engineering scorecard. And every quarter, we take a hard look at these and iterate and see if they are still providing value. Did we do uh, our job in making this metric more reliable, more stable? Like, uh, And does this give us a good indication of how healthy our systems are, how healthy our platforms are? And that has been immensely fruitful because the whole organization knows that everyone from leadership to the teams are working towards making sure that this metric is something we totally understand, we can measure and we can drive towards optimizing. Yeah, I, I think the piece that is so key and, and pivotal is that team element to it because if we are not working towards the same goal, one, we can't celebrate it at the end because no one really knows what was going on to begin with. And then I think it it also approaches and touches on sometimes we need help and sometimes we need support. And if we don't have that clarity of what it is we're doing and how it ties into the larger purpose of other parts of the organization, then uh, again, we're we're not going to be at our most effective or our most efficient. Uh, A lot of the conversations that, that we've had so far uh, and that I've been able to, to have with community members around how can we work better and across teams or across business units. And part of it is, is sometimes we need to bring the right people around the table to have a conversation around, right, what are these goals and what are these priorities in a way that if one team really needs the support, we can all turn around and support them. Because 
again, we all want to celebrate together. So we should all be prepared and, and able to empower others to help us get to a point where we can cross that finish line. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100% with you. And I think that's where the senior leadership can set the tone, right? That these are shared goals. There could still be a single person accountable for this goal. But your success is not measured by how well your team is doing, but how well are you empowering other teams or supporting them in their goals, right? So, I mean, that is something we've also kind of learned the hard way and because it's one thing to think about it in theory and yeah, yeah. how to apply <laughs> it in practice. So, obviously, it makes a huge difference even the way the goals are worded because people may interpret that as, okay, I'll create my service and I'll run it in production and I hit my goal. But guess what? No, you didn't hit your goal until <laughs> your internal customers have adopted it and they feel satisfied with what the service needs to do for them in order to meet the end customer use case. So I, I do think that clarity of the goal and setting that precedence early on is the right thing to do. Otherwise, we'll have a lot of wasted cycles in the system. Yeah. In, in a more practical sense now, for folks that are listening, if you know we have, let's say, a, a new engineering manager, brand, brand new to sort the people management side of things, what would be your tip to them when first approaching goals and being able to, to communicate and, and build that clarity with the rest of the team? Oftentimes it happens, we grow our teams and we have to hire new leaders, right? So first of all, encourage my leaders to start with clarity, right? Like understand what the business is asking out of them, understand what your team's needs are and translate that into clear goals. The next one is communication with goals or with anything else, saying it once is not enough. It has to be front and center. You have to uh, do that often for it to stick or for people to really eternalize it because some people may misinterpret it or may have follow-up questions, right? So like clarity, communication, and then the last piece is sort of coming back with feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how did we do? How did we measure across it? And then kind of build on that and iterate. And the thing I want to say to a new leader coming in is like, understand how your organization works and to me it's like try to see if there's a culture of experimentation that you can build right where you can make it safe for people to you know experiment and even fail and learn from it versus the need to always prove that everything is awesome and everything yeah. is done and everything <laughs> is perfect so I, I feel like if your organization allows for that environment to flourish then that's when you will be a really strong leader who can objectively look at the data and say that yes, we did great in this area versus these are the areas where we can improve, right? So yeah, I think clarity and communication are a big part of a leader's role. With that communication piece, part of it is knowing to ask questions. And I think that can be scary sometimes. I think that can be intimidating sometimes. But again, hopefully the, the teams and the larger support systems are ones that recognize that I'm asking a question to drive to that end goal and objective. So in, in terms of goal setting kind of takeaways, really that clarity, that, that communication piece and just curiosity to know, okay, what is that end goal and, and what is that objective to be able to prepare to meet it? Plans go wrong all the time. But if, if we're really preparing and, and adjusting and iterating to your point, then hopefully we get to a point where, you know, at an all hands, we are celebrating that we got to, to that finish line. 
Shreda, thank you so much for, for joining, uh, joining this podcast. Uh, before I let you go, though, want to see if there are any other things that you'd want to share when it comes to either celebrating and, and winning and, and uh, accomplishing goals that, that you're proud of or anything else that you'd want to leave folks with. Yeah, actually, when you were uh, just saying what you said last, one thing crossed my mind, like leading with curiosity is so important. And it's also like, are you able to debate and then decide or as a leader are you deciding and then just not leaving much room for debate I think that makes a very big difference in how teams feel about bringing that curiosity out asking the right questions and um, I have truly enjoyed chatting with you and I feel like yeah I'm excited about how ELC community is shaping the future engineering leaders that was Shweta Saraf talking about building moments of recognition and strategies to establish goals and provide clarity to your teams. Our last feature, when Sue, on how to prioritize making time and taking steps toward what you really want. One of the things that as we as we talk to engineering leaders, a lot of it can focus on career, what's next. A lot of it can focus on what's, you know, technical innovation and, and how, how do we make it work? Or, you know, a lot of it can focus on how do I hold a better one-on-one with my direct report? But outside of that, what is the most powerful question that you have ever been asked? Great question. And, and, and I love that you brought up the empathy perspective. So... The most empowered question I've been asked is actually very, very simple. It is, what do you really, really want? It is impactful because engineering leaders in the day ins and day outs, it's very hard for us to really pause and say, what do I really want? What's the purpose? And when I ask that question, it's not only, I, I think work setting, of course, is the main one, yeah. right? Especially if you think about, oh, I have conflict with my coworkers. If I ask myself, what do I really want at that point, right? It's very easy for me to then shift myself to, oh, I really want to have a better conversation or I really want to come up with solutions collectively, right? So that will shift how I talk to these people. And if we take a step back even more, right, what do I really want, right, from this role or from this company or from my job or from all the things I do? And I think in that way, I get to realign myself with not only my head. I think as engineer leader, we're so much in our head. We're very analytical. But when I ask, what do I really want? It brings me to my heart in a way uh, it integrates. Mm-hmm. It starts the integration process for me to, uh, like you said, come from a space of empathy, but also using my analytical mind to come up like the best answer to that question at that time to help me like make the best decisions or take the best actions. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be such a set path, almost like you're, I don't know, like the like railroad tracks where, okay, well, starting as an IC, then I need to become an EM, then I'm going to become a director, then and so on and so forth. And suddenly it's 30, 40 years down the line and it's okay, your whole life is mapped out just because you started as an IC. But what I really like about your question is, is that what you want Maybe, maybe not. When's the last time you asked yourself that? And as, as I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, when's the last time I, I really grappled with that question of, okay, 
what do I want is what I have in front of me, the solution to that question. So really as a, as a follow-up, I'm, I'm curious for, for those that are, that are listening right now and starting to think, okay, what do I want? What if that answer doesn't align with where they are currently? And there is that dissatisfaction of, okay, well, I, I might not be able to phrase right now what I want, but I just know that it isn't what I'm doing right now or where I'm at right now, whether it's the level, domain, whatever it might be. Any any advice for those folks? Yeah, great question. I think the question, what do you really want, really get us thinking, right? And uh, maybe it's not where we are right now, right? So we have a vision of where we want to get to. And I think that's why that question is so good, right? To really bring up that awareness. So you start to think about, okay, am I on the path to get to what I really want? And if not, then what do I want to do about it, right? So many people actually based on their own stage in life, right? Like, for example, for me, back then, I actually took a gap year (laughs) to really like explore for myself and try out different things and to find out at that time, actually, I would love to start coaching people because my passion for people, you know, as a people manager. So not surprising, but I give myself that time to do it. But on the other hand, there are many people who have uh, certain responsibilities, Mm -hmm. things like that, financial, you know, responsibility, especially where uh, they cannot do drastic Mm -hmm. change. I think the most valuable is to identify where your North Star might be and start taking that small incremental step to get there. So for example, if you feel like you're in the environment, you are not you know, fully appreciated or there aren't that many opportunities, then really think about you know, what kind of environment will support you. And even like you know, every day, take 15 minutes just to find answers or do researches, talk to people, things like that. So like gradually, you are moving yourself toward that and create the opportunities for you to be more in alignment uh, with where you really want to get to. I think when it comes to, to finding that alignment, something I heard you say is taking those those 15 minutes. You know, for, for leaders, it is so hard to be able to take that moment to pause. And in my experience, for good leaders or, or those that really are there to serve and empower their, their teams, they're responsible both to and for their, their team. And it can be really hard to even carve out those 15 minutes, especially with, with folks in, in our community. They're, they're so passionate about getting their teams to perform the best, getting their teams to to really deliver the best outcomes. So I'm curious when it comes to how can you establish that practice of how do I prioritize myself as an engineering leader to be able to take those 15 minutes to even ask myself, okay, what is it that I really want? Great question, because uh, I think even back then, before I decided to take a year sabbatical, it was hard for me, right? Because I keep thinking that, oh, my people need me, right? And, yeah. and in that case, one thing that shifts my thinking is that if I feel like I'm not in the right place, that's uh, motivating me to be the best version of me. And I'm also not being the best for my people, right? So in that sense, I, I want to continue continue to grow and motivate myself, right? And that way, I, I serve my biggest purpose. And in turn, it serves the people. So because of that, I shift my mind in terms of, okay, so the best thing I can do for my team 
is to really make sure I am really motivated and passionate about where I am, offering like the best I can, not like the uh, half engaging, <laughs> you know, version of me or, you know, exhausted kind of me. So it's very important for me to be very self-aware. I think that's one leadership quality I think people would, can have is uh, have that awareness. And then from there, then we get to choose. Given where I am, given this is not the most motivating place for me to be, what do I want to do? So at that time, I actually then open up the opportunity to uh, someone on my team so I can bring this person up and then feel good about leaving that behind yeah. because I'm also open up opportunities for others while I'm pursuing, you know, what I really want. Yeah. So many of these behaviors and practices are ones that we say that we want our team members to also do, right? But one of my favorite quotes about leadership is that leadership is about the shadow that you cast. So to, to your point, if we're not giving ourselves the time to be able to be aligned to be able to be centered with our own motivations and asking ourselves what we want, then having a performance review with one of our team members and saying, hey, what, what do you want? Do you want to step up? Do you want to stay in IC? What, what are you looking for? If we haven't developed the, the awareness to be able to ask ourselves those questions and take the time to do it, our team members or those that we lead likely also aren't doing it because we, we haven't been able to model that behavior and they haven't seen it normalized. So it might seem just as scary to them as it can be for, for us sometimes. I know that, you know, this, this question uh, about questions and about powerful questions is, is a big one. But as we wrap up here, I wanted to see when, if there's anything else about your experience here at, at ELC Annual this year that you'd want us to wrap up on. I think what strikes me the most is uh, getting back to that in-person interaction where you really feel that energy with people. And I think people really crave that. And the best part I feel about this event is not only the topics, um, that's so important, you know, as engineering leaders day to day, but the roundtable discussions where you can really dive deep with people who have gone through yeah, similar yeah. things and, and really also people coming from so many different perspectives. And I think that's where really like the richness of the learning comes from. And I think it's, uh, it's really great to be able to do this in person in a way that's really bring up the energy yeah, in people yeah. and the connection. I think the true connections with people as we start to, you know, continue to figure out the post-hybrid world, yeah, yeah. what does that mean to engineering leaders, things like that. So, yeah, it's uh, really enjoyable. Yeah, well, one, we're grateful and, and thankful to have you, uh, not just here on the podcast, but also uh, a member of our community. Again, having hosted roundtables yourself and volunteering and, and really giving of yourself to helping redefine what leadership looks like and, and could be in, in engineering. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you around. Yeah, thank you, team. That's it. Thanks for listening. This was a fun experiment and the first time we've ever done a live recording like this. So if you liked this episode, please send us a message and let us know at hello at sfelc.com. It can be a quick thumbs up. It can be a quick this rocked or hey, I would do this better. As you can hopefully tell from these conversations, ELC Annual was inspiring. 
it was illuminating and it was a ton of fun. And these types of conversations about leadership, impact, and navigating critical challenges in engineering orgs, they were happening everywhere. We are definitely bringing the pop-up podcast studio back at our next one. So come join us for ELC annual. It's coming up August 30th through 31st later this year. We'd love to see you there. For early access tickets, you can go to sfelc.com forward slash annual 2023. Grab your ticket, grab your team a ticket.